put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. I started this podcast to drill into the details of natural growing practices as they relate to flower farming. It felt like there was a void in the industry for this kind of information, and while I've been focusing on the regeneration of the soils and ecosystem at my farm for over four years now, I still have lots of questions. With each new episode of this podcast, I hope to get a few more answers to those questions for myself and for you, the ever-curious listener. All right, let's get started with today's show. My guests today are Ken Michael and Erica Eschholz of Teton Full Circle Farm located in Victor, Idaho. Their 20-acre diversified farm includes everything from a dairy cow to dianthus. Teton Full Circle Farm has a flower CSA and grows flowers for weddings. I sought out Erica and Ken because their farm is certified biodynamic. Finding a certified biodynamic flower farm is kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. Since there are only 130 farms certified in all of the United States, and most of those are focused on vegetables, dairy, and or vineyards. Erica and Ken are so warm and sharing. I wanted to hang out with them and chat all day. I presently have so many questions swimming around my brain about biodynamics. I started following the biodynamic calendar for seed sowing in 2021 out of sheer curiosity and with lots of skepticism. But I noticed the speed and percentage of germination on some of my most tried and true flower seeds was exponentially better, and that really got me curious about sort of the whole kit and caboodle of biodynamics. I haven't delved into any of the biodynamic preparations yet, as those seem really daunting, and I have no cow horns or fresh cow manure at my farm. And so much of biodynamics seems like a spiritual framework that I have been hesitant to go beyond sowing by the calendar. I can wrap my head around how the magnetic energy of the moon, sun, and stars influences the rise and fall of water and air in the soil. If the moon can push and pull the tides, it doesn't seem like too much of a stretch to think that it can also coax little seedlings to stretch stretch up and roots to dive deeper. The inhalation and exhalation of the soil is well documented by science. But I confess the spiritual, more esoteric part of biodynamics is the stumbling block for me. However, there is much about biodynamics that dovetails perfectly with regenerative farming practices. My conversation with Erica and Ken really brought that home. There are four pillars in the framework of biodynamics, and three of the four are straight out of pretty much any Regen Ag book. And the fourth pillar, the spiritual one, can be considered less woo-woo and more practical if one approaches it as simply spending time observing your farm and making note of what is working and what is not. Am I a convert to biodynamics? Ever the philosophical gadfly that wants to test and explore any set of practices with a healthy dose of skepticism I'll take biodynamics for a test drive and report back. The crew and I will be running some trials at my farm this coming season to document if the biodynamic calendar and some of the basic biodynamic preparations, like the manure in the cowhorn, have a measurable impact on flower crops like snapdragons and zinnias. For now, I am really grateful to Erica and Ken for taking the time to help me work through some of my initial questions based on their experiences. 
Be sure to check out their website and Instagram feeds for Teton Full Circle Farm. Their website has lots of info on biodynamics, and they generously shared several biodynamic resources that I will be linking to directly here in the show notes. If you are curious about biodynamics and many other sets of regenerative growing practices as they relate to flower farming, consider joining the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network. Find it at regenerativeflowerfarmersnetwork.org. A vibrant community hub for the ever-curious flower farmer, this new network helps make connections, starts conversations, and serves as a repository for an ever-growing curated collection of articles and studies on regenerative farming practices. Membership also helps to support the making of more podcast episodes here at No-Till Flowers. And with that, let's welcome Ken and Erica. Today, I am sitting down with a lovely conversation in the midst of winter with Erica Eschultz and Ken Michael, the husband and wife team behind Teton Full Circle Farm based out in Victor, Idaho. Our focus today is going to be all about biodynamics and what these guys are doing on their farms, which I'm super excited to learn about. So welcome, Erica and Ken. Thank you for spending some time with me this afternoon. Thank you, Jenny. We're, we're pretty excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's our pleasure. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So let's just like dive right into sort of the basics because I want to learn a lot more about your farm overall in general. And then our list, our listeners will get to know a little bit more about you too. So tell me about how you got started farming in the first place out there. Okay, great. Maybe I'll start and, and Ken can share his startup journey. Um, we, we both started before we met, um, I got my feet wet gardening while growing up in northeastern Connecticut with my folks um, who had an extensive home veggie and flower gardens, um, as well as a few farm animals. Um, I, um, yeah, just learned right away all about weeding and um, the um, deliciousness of home food and flowers on the table. Uh, At at a young age, I I really was exposed to those uh, gems of life. So I'd say that that was a really strong foundation for me. And uh, kind of as I grew up and moved through life and and went to school, I I always had a little garden wherever I was, um, however small it may have been. Um, and then eventually, um, I, I actually spent some years working in the outdoor field, um, leading, uh, outdoor trips, environmental education, um, and ended up in Teton Valley, uh, where I met, uh, a, a friend of mine who is a biodynamic farmer. And this kind of starts to, to move into you know, my exposure to biodynamics. Yeah. So yeah. I'll let Ken kind of share his background first. Yeah, sure. So um, I also grew up in a gardening family um, and yeah, I learned how to weed right away and was out picking tomatoes for tomato sandwiches at a young age. <laughs> and um, The gateway but... drug for all <laughs> children to learn to garden. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, I grew up in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, so very different climate than Erica, um, but out West. 
And we lived just four blocks from the state capitol building. So it was an urban garden, but it was like every square inch of yard we had turned over at some point. And I really got the bug for like hard work and seeing things grow and feeling that, um, you know, just the joy of like building something beautiful and seeing it come through and a job well done. And um, I actually studied agriculture in college um, at the University of Wyoming and ended up coming to Teton Valley for an internship um, at Snowdrift Farm, which um, I'm sure Erica will hit on soon. And uh, that's where Erica and I met. Nice, nice. And what what kind of agriculture did you study in school, Ken? Was it for vegetable farming or you went for some other other element? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, the major was actually called agroecology, but um, mm. you know, agriculture in Wyoming is like wheat fallow or sugar beets or right. <laughs> you know, hay. You know, right. it's it's pretty rugged. It's it's such a rugged area, and I knew I was going to probably leave the state to farm because it's just you know, I saw what it was like trying to garden in Cheyenne, and I was like, I don't know how I could ever have you know, a vegetable garden or grow flowers, you know, in that kind of soil with that kind of wind and that much hail. It was just, it seemed untenable. And Idaho's actually better. I'm, I'm a little skeptical <laughs> over here. <laughs> I'm not seeing the great trade-off. Like I thought maybe you'd go to like Kansas or somewhere. <laughs> right. Well, we don't have as much hail, um, definitely less wind. Um, hmm. It, we do have some colder temps, but um, there's a lot of snow that sits on the ground during those really cold times. So the ground actually stays really nice and insulated. And um, we're actually in a beautiful spot with, you know, fantastic soil. So we had a lot of things. When I got here, I was like, wow, this place is lush. <laughs> America <laughs> always teases me because, you know, coming from Connecticut, she's like, right. this isn't lush, dude. <laughs> 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 yeah, <laughs> I suspect, uh, yeah, I would be shocked by the unlushness of Idaho, too. <laughs> well, oh, cool. I, I love those backgrounds that you guys bring, you know, the, the, the way you were informed from a very young age about the value of growing and working in the soil. So tell me a little bit then, um, before we go into biodynamics in particular, let's just talk about the size of your farm currently, how long you've been growing on it, um, the location in particular. It sounds pretty dreamy to me. And, and then also your growing climate, like what's your zone, but then you have all that snow. So yeah, break it down for me. What is sort of what is it like to grow at your farm? Sure. Um, yeah, we've been on this location now for four years. Um, previous, well, we're heading into our fourth season, I should say. Previously, we were leasing uh, another farm for the, the previous five years. So Ken and I have been farming together on our own business operation for nine years now. Um, this this farm that we own uh, is 20 acres, um, 10 wow. of which are in hay, uh, five are in pasture, and two annual veggies and flowers, um, one approximately of, of uh, perennial trees and shrubs, and then the remainder ag buildings and two residences. My mom lives here with us. Wow, that's amazing. That's a lot of space. I didn't realize you guys were that big. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, when we started shopping for a farm, we started to, yeah, we, you know, set our goals for how much 
land we thought would be appropriate to have a thriving biodynamic farm. So that size, um, as we'll talk about, um, kind of helps the big picture of biodynamics uh, to to really foster that biodynamic way. Yeah. Right. And you're located right by the Tetons, you told me. So you're in what, what must be an incredibly picturesque location. It is quite beautiful. Uh, we're in the, the city of Victor, which is really a very small town um, in the valley in Teton Valley, which is on the west side of the Tetons. Hmm. So if we were to hike east, we would eventually end up in Grand Teton National Park if we hiked long enough. Wow. Um, yeah. Right. And one of the beautiful things about that is that the you know, we're the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which we're bordering, is the largest intact ecosystem in the lower 48. Mm -hmm. So we really use that to our advantage in our farming. We really try to, wow. you know, draw the nature into the farm. So there's yeah. just all that life and abundance that we want to make sure to promote and encourage. Um, not that we want, you know, deer coming in and eating everything, but <laughs> you know, we're also sure. not going to, you know, <laughs> them keep them out. You know, we'll, you, we'll think, we think of ways that they can be of value to us. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I didn't even think about that piece of the puzzle, how that makes your farm such a uniquely integrated piece of the ecosystem around you. I, at my farm, I feel like I'm constantly trying to build an ecosystem because it's an urban farm in the middle of like one of America's oldest cities. And, and that's a, a mission of my farm is to, you know, recreate, regenerate ecosystem. But you are, you're almost doing like sort of the opposite thing of like, make sure you don't step on an amazing ecosystem, essentially. Is that, you know, kind of what I'm reading here? Yeah, well, definitely. We just want it to um, contribute really to the wow. surrounding. Yeah. Yeah. We're also maybe more similar than you think. Um, when we bought this farm in 2016, it was monoculture alfalfa, you know, so it was mm. just an alfalfa field that had been paid for years and years and years. And they put down you know, nitrogen and sprayed for uh, weevils. So, you know, it was just kind of just a big hay field. So since then, we've actually introduced, um, I don't know how many tree species, at least 20 species of different trees and shrubs, um, planted, you know, 10 different grass species. And um, yeah, the pasture is now, you know, at least like 20 different plants. And uh, and then on top of all the things we're growing from all the vegetable varieties to the flowers, it's just, you know, there's a lot going on now. Um, and we're getting animals back in the scene. So it, we're really, it really has changed um, from kind of a stale environment to one that's definitely alive and thriving. That's amazing. So what was the soil like when you got it? And then what's the soil like now? Do you, is it a clay loam? Is it, I have no idea what soil in Idaho is like, like no idea. <laughs> right. So a lot of the valley um, is kind of carved out from past glaciation and where mm. the riverbed used to kind of move through the valley, you know, as it sort of snaked across the landscape. Um, but on these edges here, we have all these, um, deposits of um, windblown sediments called Lus. And so there's some little pockets around, basically around the edge of the valley. It's kind of like up the edge of the bathtub, sort of, <laughs> you know, it leaves that little <laughs> deposit. And um, we have about a foot of topsoil and it's mostly 
um, silt, um, though there are pockets of clay. Um, and so, you know, it, it's really well textured and um, we do have rocks, um, nothing horrible. Um, but once we get about a foot down, then it turns to, you know, basically old riverbed, um, kind of these, you know, I don't know what you'd even call that soil. It's just rocky. Yeah. Yeah. Just a subsoil. Yeah. Yeah. Rocky subsoil. Yeah. That um, sounds, that sounds dreamy, a foot of, of topsoil that's mostly silt. Um, sounds pretty amazing to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. And one of the big changes, you know, that we've seen over time is, you know, when we, when you first work the soil here, it's, um, there just isn't very, there wasn't very much organic matter in it. Mm. Um, so, you know, if it rained and then got really dry, cause you know, we're in a very dry climate, um, you know, in the summertime. So the sun would just bake it and you could get kind of some cracking and, you know, sort of a hard pan. Um, and we really don't see much of that anymore. We've really gotten it to a point where there's more organic matter, more life, and it's, you know, better conditions. So you can actually work it um, yeah. instead of just getting kind of cakey and crusty. Yeah. Crusty, so what did yeah. you, what did you do to switch that around then? Have you been cover cropping or adding microbes or is that part of the biodynamics that you brought in that has really changed the, um, the crusty, crusty nature of things? Yeah. Um, this might actually be a good segue into the biodynamics. Yeah. 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 Tell me, Tell me why you came into biodynamics. Tell me, just give me your whole story. I, I would love to hear it from the very beginning. Okay, great. And then, yeah, and then we'll come back to the the soil. Crusty uh, soil. Yeah, crusty <laughs> soil. Back, back your head. Um, yeah, so uh, I had never heard about biodynamics before I moved to Teton Valley. And um, uh, soon after I moved here, uh, I met a fellow who became a good friend um, who was starting a farm. His name, Jed Restucia, who started the Cosmic Apple Garden. And I immediately said, I'd love to help and volunteer on his new farm. And um, he shared with me all about biodynamics and how excited he was to implement these practices on his farm. And so I just dove into that experiential learning with him um, and, um, volunteered for the next, um, uh, nine years and then eventually worked for him for a couple years as well. So in that time, just, uh, learning the, the basic techniques and, um, seeing his farm soil transition, uh, was, was part of my experience there. Um, and then, um, after that 11 years of experience with Jed, um, I took a full-time job. I changed careers there. I, I had been in the environmental ed and, and outdoor ed field um, and took a full-time farm manager job at Snowdrift Farm, um, where I introduced biodynamic practices immediately um, because I knew the, the benefit. I had seen the benefit on Jed's farm. Um, we didn't get certified. At, I just want to make a note there that we were certified organic, but not biodynamic on Snowdrift. Um, and then I also delved in a little deeper during that period and took some workshops and did some reading. Um, but but and then um, at the end of that, Ken joined us at at Snowdrift as an intern. We chose to start our own farm together and we knew that we would definitely be a certified biodynamic right. farm 
after our experiences, after my experience on the both farms and, and Ken's experience there at Snowdrift. But just, yeah, just that experience of seeing the soil change <laughs> before your eyes. Of course, it takes some years, but but right. those years, uh, you remember, you're like, oh, yeah, you remember that June when it was just all chunk? Yeah, we had, you know, <laughs> we didn't know what to do, how to deal with it. And then, you, you know, another year or two later, you're like, wow, there's no chunks, you know, it's not, you look at the cake. Wow. It's turning into cake here. Into it's, cake. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, so you just start to log these experiences with the soil and you just see the, the amazing benefit over time. Um, and you and you tune in, you know, you're part of biodynamics is really tuning into these subtleties um, and, you know, learning to um, be hyper aware of these subtle changes and noting them uh, over time. Right. Yeah, so, and something I'd yeah. kind of like to add just to, you know, that that notion of biodynamics and noticing those subtleties is you know, so much of agriculture these days, you know, we're looking for like that scientific kind of precision agriculture way of doing things. Yeah. And biodynamics really asks us to step outside of that because there's so much happening that we can't measure and we can't even really figure out how to begin to measure scientifically um, that we have to use our own intuition and our own um, senses really to tune into that and start using those those methods and what we found you know over that course of you know practicing biodynamics especially on our new farm here is that the results are unmistakable we don't we can't measure it and we don't know exactly what the mechanism was but yeah the results are undeniable So it, how long did it feel like it took you to start seeing results? Uh, is it something that is going to take four years or something when somebody starts doing biodynamic practices? Or does it feel like there's a pretty quick shift in the ecosystem at your farm? Yeah, we, we chose to kind of double dose our, our new farm here. Oh, well, both of our farms, um, the one we were leasing and this one. That is, um, there's a recommended minimum amount of biodynamic preparations that to be certified that um, you're required to add to your farm. But we went ahead and did double of that, double that our first okay. few years on both farms. So we saw, I would say within two years, a change, hmm. uh, a distinct change. And then three more, you know, a, and a year later, even more, and just that just increases over time. Yeah, yeah. Within two years of the double dosing, <laughs> we we saw quite a difference. Wow. Okay, so let's let's try to like break down biodynamics in general. Like I I know some you know I've been doing research about it. It's been one of my my new projects, my new areas of interest. So I I feel like I know a fair amount about it, though not having practiced it much yet. But for the listeners who don't really know what biodynamics is, can you just give a quick, you know, breakdown of what it is, how it started, um, that kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah. And that's, this is where our kind of our kind of, uh, and I have donned these, um, the three pillars of mm. biodynamics that we will share now. Um, I guess initially too, just to, to begin, 
um, that uh, Rudolf Steiner was the founder of, of biodynamics, so the one who first introduced the concept uh, in Germany to the farmers there who were struggling with um, quality in their crops. They were seeing a loss of quality in their production and um, went to Rudolf Steiner, who's at the time kind of was the go-to for many things. He's kind of a Renaissance man, very knowledgeable um, in a lot of different areas. And so this group of farmers went to Rudolf and said, well, can you help us out here? Um, we're struggling and need some insights. And Rudolf was known as quite an insightful man. Um, so he gave a series of eight lectures in 1924, which is now the foundation of our practices today. Um, so there's a great book out there that it's a little heavy, that that thick, um, called Agriculture, which has these initial eight lectures in it. Um, but it is it is worth. I encourage people to crack that book open and and check it out. It's it's definitely hard to um, boil it down uh, your first reading. Um, and of course, we'll give you some other avenues to get um, a greater understanding. Um, but it is worth kind of cracking that book open and seeing what you do observe. Uh, I'm glad the... you said that because I just ordered that book last week and I was like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to really want to read this because I, <laughs> I, I, um, I've done that with some other like super nerdy historical, you know, books in terms of regenerative bartering and have been like, nah, I don't know, was that worth my time? But I love that you said that, Erica. So now okay. I'm excited for it. Okay. And, and so now we'll give you the, a quick and dirty summary of that book. <laughs> I don't know. Awesome. That, maybe I that. love it too um, egotistical to say, but um, these are the nuts and bolts uh, we'll share with you now. Um, and and the, we, we come down to four pillars. Um, and I'll just start with the first one um, as um, looking at the farm as a closed system or the farm organism. Um, we might say nurturing the farm organism. That would be the title of this pillar. So, um, yeah, so Rudolf Steiner encouraged farmers to look at their farm as an individual um, and whole organism, kind of like looking at our body. You know, our body has a brain and a heart and a circulation system. Um, it has sensations. So he, he used the body as a metaphor to your farm and that every part is critical to the functioning of the whole. And if we think in that manner um, of this closed system, this full circle, as you will, um, then we have, um, there'll, there'll be just a greater health to the whole rather than bringing in uh, a, a part from California and maybe another part from the East Coast and um, bringing in these different parts to your farm, but, they, but instead cultivating a whole whole farm organism right there on your farm that is finding all the necessary components that you need to feed your farm on your farm um and and i'm sure many people have you know in the organic field have already are already starting to um practice this and understand the benefit of local and um getting some of their supplies locally rather than from far afield um, so that's, yeah, that's 
something we aim for. It's it's not something we are are doing completely at this time. Um, but we, when I was, we were talking about why 20 acres, um, we had in mind, well, someday we're going to need a cow who's going to eat, needs to eat the, the field grass there right near right. our farm, who's going to produce the manure that's going to go back on our farm field to right. have that closed loop system. Um, so that's, and not to say everybody has to run out and buy a 20 acre farm to be biodynamic, but thinking about, okay, is there a place on my farm I can keep chickens or have um, a pet pony, <laughs> whatever it is, an animal that- um, An animal, yeah. yeah that eats and poops, you know? Right. <laughs> I will say, yeah, my farm's too small to really have livestock on it. I, I wish that it was, but it's such a small space that um, it, w it wouldn't really be that feasible. So I, I've had ducks in the past and that was about as good as I could get, but okay, I, I wish well, I wish I could have a cow. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's something, ducks are something, chickens are, are great. <laughs> Um, a lot of great ways to keep chickens in a yeah. tight space. Um, then, then if you can't, and that's okay, then you would look to your local farms. You know, what's mm. the, is there a local farm that, that practices uh, organically um, that you could inquire about getting some manure from? Um, is there a neighbor who keeps horses that you could clean out their stall, you know, once a season? Um, so then kind of go to the next best thing. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Like back to the human body metaphor, it's like you just want to make sure you have a healthy digestion somehow. Mm. And the animal is kind of your digestive process. But, gotcha. but it could be your compost pile. It could be a worm bin, you know, things like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, oh, I just had a quick question, if you don't mind. So this, this pillar of nurturing the whole body and sort of closing the loop, is that somewhat similar to permaculture or like it feels like there's a little crossover there between for sure permaculture and biodynamics yes i would say there are so many crossovers from from these pillars to um the basis of organic and and i really mm. think the basis for organic blossomed out of some of these early practices of biodynamics cool yeah, and uh, and regenerative agriculture as well. I yeah, mean, it's maybe yeah. More, most similar to to that idea. Right. Yeah, that doesn't feel very foreign. That particular pillar doesn't feel foreign to me at all. You know, that's kind of what I've been like. Biodynamics feels so woo woo out there, and yeah. it always makes it hard to approach it because it's kind of like I don't understand it. But pillar number one, I'm be I'm behind that. I got that. That's no right. problem. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm excited about that. So one out of four ain't bad. Let's see what other ones there are. <laughs> All right. Let's get woo-woo. <laughs> yeah, let's get woo-woo. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, the second pillar that um, we really focus on is the biodynamic preparations. And these definitely get a lot of attention um, from people um, when it comes to, you know, what is biodynamics and it's it's one of the sort of pinnacle things that you do and um yeah generally what the preparations are are various um composts or um, minerals that are uh, prepared in a specific way and then spread on the fields um so to start the first one is 500 um and rudolf steiner gave these all numbers at the time because um, there was, you know, it was post-World War One. we were starting to use more chemicals and things like that. So people were used to seeing like 
different numbers for the um you know mm. for their input for the fertilizers i never th- right. I, I always wondered where those numbers came from i didn't put that together right exactly so he was trying to help it be more accessible to mm. the average farmer at that time and um so anyway the first one that we use is the 500 and what that is is it's um um basically raw cow manure so fresh from that day and it's um packed into a cow horn um and then buried over the winter months and dug up in the spring and over that period it's um composted into this 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 beautiful um perfect humus i mean it's it's amazing to Mm. to hold it and smell it it's full of like actinomycetes and all kinds of bacteria and um i don't know how much fungi are in there but i mean it's just totally loaded um we've talked to a soil microbiologist about it and she's like oh my gosh the 500 is a gold mine when you look under it with a microscope it's just just completely filled with life and part of that is due to the shape of the horn being yeah. kind of that spiral shape you know that yeah mm-hmm. generally um let's say it energetically uh, you know accumulates um you know life um, so, so it basically is this selective environment to grab onto, or you know, to promote the growth of specific microbes. Um, and so, once that's finished, we put it in a a barrel with water. We do about a third of a cup per three gallons of water, and then we'll stir it in a vortex, um, rotating the vortex every minute or so. Um, so we'll get a good vortex going, break it, get it going the other way, break it, and then do that for an hour. So it's very similar to creating a compost tea and just oxygenating that compost tea. And then we spread it over the fields with whisk brooms. So the idea is that we're basically collecting the microbes, waking them up, activating them, and then inoculating our fields with it. And, um, you know, at that same time, there's also something energetic happening where we're bringing in sort of the forces associated with the soil that can then be spread out over the fields. So that's that's one example of, you know, one of the preparations. But um, the other ones include the 501, which is a horn silica preparation. And, you know, very similar where you pack a horn with silica that's kind of turned into a, a sort of a slurry, kind of like a paste. And then that's buried during the summer months and then spread um, around, you know, late summer or fall to promote ripening of fruit crops or in the, it's really a potent preparation for the flowers um, and getting mm. them to really be vigorous. And um, it, ha- it bears a relationship to silica, of course. Um, so that it's really um, just helps the vigor of plants. And we don't know why that one works, but um, again and again, there are studies done, you know, just uh, blind um, studies where, um, you know, a field of wheat is let go as a control. Another one gets the horn silica and, you know, the, the difference in yield is huge. So, you know, there's, there's studies like that, but it, it's hard to prove what the exact, you know, method is. Right. Right. Yeah. And, right. and from there, then there's compost preparations, um, which are, um, w- which we have not made ourselves yet. They're, they're challenging and they require specific, um, uh, plants and animal, um, kind of, what would you say? Like structures. Structures. Yeah. Mm. Um, and a lot of those plants we do grow here, but they're, 
they're just hard to prepare. Yeah. Um, and and all of these basically you can order um, from like the Josephine Porter Institute or mm-hmm. Biodynamic Source in Colorado. Um, those are good sources for these. So you don't have to dive right into making them all your, all yourself, but it's it's good to start, you know, getting them on the fields, playing with them, seeing seeing what you notice. And um, yeah, generally it's, it's just these little, um, these subtle um, forces. And, uh, you know, like it's only fairly recently that we're starting to really understand the role of microbes even right. in, yeah. in our soil. Um, so I think Steiner was just maybe a little bit ahead of his time, <laughs> you know, and understanding that there's a very strong energetic effect right. from these preparations. And uh, yeah. It sounds a little bit like this part, this, you know, the preparations have a good crossover to Korean natural farming or Jadam, that kind of stuff where you're trying to populate microbes, you know, to increase, you know, uh, culture them, I guess, basically, and and increase that energy in a preparation, you know, different different terminology, but essentially the same thing. But I am curious about why a cow horn? Do you guys know why a cow horn so specific? <laughs> like, it, I guess the spiral shape, is that why it's so fundamental? When I think about biodynamics, I always think about the cow horn. And then I'm always like, well, I don't have a cow horn, so I don't know what to do. <laughs> sure. I think it's also the material, the cow horn material, that um, bony material mm. is important to it. Um, and, and then in terms of the, where to get the cow horns, um, yeah, the Josephine Porter Institute is a nonprofit set up specifically to support biodynamic farmers and sourcing these things. So you can buy, you know, 20 cow horns from mm. the Josephine Porter, uh, yeah, this organization. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, another thing about cows is, you know, in, in Europe at the time, you know, they were ubiquitous, right? They were mm. good at you know, mm-hmm. transforming the pasture into meat and milk. Um, you know, they're kind of like the ultimate little, uh, you know, Jeez. fertility <laughs> machines, <laughs> yeah. right? right. Um, and, you know, when they, when they die and they shed that horn, that horn is just a, a perfect vessel um, mm. for for that manure to be, you know, composted in. So I think a lot of it is also goes back to simply you know, you work with what's available to you and yeah. kind of what's come from the landscape and what's going to go back into the landscape, you know, keeping that closed system. And in that same way, you know, treating it at, when we look at the farm organism as kind of like that human body, it's almost like the preparations are like, you know, your, your medicines or your supplements or, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. that is, you know, just to really keep that body tip top. Hmm. Yeah. So a quick question. If you're trying to keep this closed loop, I have actually uh, just ordered some, uh, I guess it was just uh, 500 maybe from the Josephine um, Porter Institute. Um, And my question was, well, is that defeating the purpose if you're supposed to make these preparations on your own farm? And I just want to try it and see, but I was curious if you guys, since you've been in the biodynamic practice for so long, if you think that buying in it's, I'm sure it's a good way to get started if you don't have any experience, but ultimately, I guess it would be better to truly close that loop in terms of like Steiner's principles. Yeah, I guess 
if if you had a farm nearby, like a, another biodynamic farm, where maybe you could go help them stir the preps, and hmm. they were making them there on their farm, and for your time helping, they send you home with a, a little batch to spread on your property. Hmm. That would be one way to go. Um, but we've we've been buying, you know, some of these supplements for for some years now. Um, and I think the movement is growing. There's now, we were buying it from the Josephine Porter Institute for years. And now there's um, a group in Colorado closer to our farm. <laughs> um, it, uh, the Josephine Porter Institute's on the East Coast, you know, so now we have a source, at least in the Intermountain West, that we can uh, get these preps from. Um, and as the movement grows, you know, who knows, you, there may be a local farm near you that's making these preps and can share them. Well, and something you can do is um, something we did early on before we had a cow is we, we had the horns and we would just go to the dairy and collect the mm. manure there, pack the horns and bury them on our farm. So it wasn't, you know, the manure wasn't from the farm, but they were buried there. Yeah. Okay. Nice, nice touch. Yeah, well, definitely. Because then you're truly getting the local microorganisms in the resulting preparation for sure. Right. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Okay. So we've got pillar one and pillar two, oh, but were there more, sorry, Ken, I probably cut you off from, uh, were there more preparations that you wanted to talk about? Like the silica, the 501, I've been really curious about that and was one of the questions I had for you guys. Ultimately, if there was preparation, like one singular preparation in biodynamics, that would be the most helpful to flower growing. If, if those of us that are biodynamic curious, <laughs> delved into one preparation. <laughs> Does that even make sense? Ideally, you're working with all of the preps at the same time. You'll have the, the best benefit. Um, if you if you rather kind of simplify it down, there's there was a fellow named Pfeiffer who came up with kind of an all-in-one field and garden spray. <clears throat> and it's pre uh it's pre-stirred so you don't have to stir it for an hour you only you only stir it for 20 minutes um, and that's also available at these various supply um, organizations so the Pfeiffer field and garden spray that's what we would recommend you start with there's also a Pfeiffer compost starter um, and that's uh, again real simple you know the the um, Ken mentioned the five um, preps that go in the the compost, but with the Pfeiffer compost starter, it's just one. They're basically all in that um, one prep. So okay. that would be what we recommend for the simple, um, yet you're getting all the components. It's kind of goes back to that organism, just spraying the 501 um, may actually cause more imbalance on your farm. Mm. If you're not um, using these other parts to the puzzle. Okay. Okay. Right. It, the five. It's almost like the five hundred and the five hundred one are, you know, balancing each other. It's like you have the earth element and you have the light element, and you want them to, to be in harmony. You really should approach it as a whole, which is exactly what you said in pillar right. number one. So <laughs> right. I'm already a bad biodynamic student <laughs> looking for the abridged version. <laughs> it's just, I mean, maybe that leads to an ultimate question of, um, I, I guess, you know, as a farmer who's got a million things going on, it's hard sometimes to piece all these things together. And biodynamics to me feels like 
such a big ball in, in a good way. There, there's clearly so much richness and no doubt, um, you know, rewards to be had. But when you're trying to just get crops in the ground and deal with things and everything, like how do how does it look for you guys to include biodynamics in your day-to-day farming? Is it like a, a lot of extra work? Is it uh, you have to plan a lot of stuff out or is it somehow just kind of fit in over time? It, it just, yeah, becomes kind of a pattern that you incorporate on a seasonal basis. Um, and of course, we have some staff and, and work shares. We have a work mm. share program that help us apply these preps. Because uh, as Ken mentioned, you know, we wander across the fields with whisk brooms uh, spreading mm. the 500. And it's nice to have a little crew to do oh, that. cool. Yeah. Um, and in the literature, you know, Rudolf Steiner suggested having some people over for Sunday Sunday brunch or dinner and um, getting them to help you stir your preps and spread them. So it's it could be very community building as well, um, which is kind of fun. Right. And, wow. you know, really, your question is also a good segue into the third pillar of the calendar, um, because working with the biodynamic calendar really does help us um, set up our weeks and our seasons um, in the flow so that we know what we're working with. Um, say, it's, whether it's, you know, our leaf crops or our flower crops or our fruit crops. Um, you know, we know what we're getting into during the week. And, um, and it, yeah, it really helps us lay out our workload in a way that's, you know, harmonious and smooth. And uh, yeah. we're never, you know, it helps us smooth out, I guess, the the peaks of the season. We're never like in a huge crunch to get everything planted all at once because we know that there's a day for that coming up. Right. Yeah, I did notice that. I just tried using the calendar in 2021. I started following the calendar and initially I thought it was going to make my workload more challenging where I felt like I was having to stress and jam everything into one day. And I noticed over time that it was actually really a a super easy flow. You know, it was like, oh, wow, I think this is the way everybody should be doing it. Not, not for the woo woo biodynamic part, but just the, the, um, it's a good pace to be like seeding at a certain time. And then, you know, the transplanting is going to come up at a certain time. Like I felt like it just really helped me pace myself through the season. And I was really impressed by how following the biodynamic calendar, um, really wasn't hard at all once I wrapped my head around it. Mm. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and what's interesting, you know, is that that calendar is based on astronomical phenomena, basically the flows of, you know, how the moon is moving against kind of the cosmic background, you might say, where it is relative to the constellations um, behind it, um, you know, as well as, you know, is it, you know, ascending or descending, you know, on that horizon. And, um, you know, those are phenomena that have been important to cultures for millennia, you know, and across cultures too. So, you know, these are principles that have risen independently over, you know, much of human history, um, you know, long before we had any way to really um, measure its impacts. Yeah, definitely. So when you guys are sowing or so the bio, let's break down the biodynamic calendar in particular a little bit. 
it's not just about sewing and transplanting. It also has to do with when you deliver the preparations to the to the farm. Is that correct? Yeah, we we choose the appropriate day. Um, so, for example, the five hundred, we would likely choose a root day um, to spread, the, or or a fruit day. Um, and then on the 501, we'd likely choose a flower day or a fruit day. Go Do you ahead. try to harvest by the calendar too? I've always wondered if that was really hard. Is that an additional element to the way you're using the calendar? No, we, we have to harvest on our schedule. So um, something Rudolph did mention somewhere in that book is, you know, you, you try to follow these these patterns, um, but sometimes you just have to do what you have to do on the day you have to do it. Okay. <laughs> so that's always our fallback. Oh, you know, we have the harvest schedule. We're just going to need to, even though it's not the best day to harvest the kale, we're going to harvest the kale today because we got to get it to market tomorrow. Right, um, right. Yeah, that's right. what I always wondered. I was like, oh gosh, I can't wait to harvest flowers until a flower day. I mean, flower days only come around like every 10 days. So what would I do with all those flowers in the That's meantime? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what's fun is when you do harvest the flowers on a flower day, you notice the difference. You and do? That, yeah. That noticing is, um, you know, part of part of the whole, you know, being like, oh, wow, did you see the flowers today versus mm. another on any other day? So what, right. do, what, what does that manifest? Like, do they have a different color or they just feel sturdier? Like what, what do you notice when you see that it's a flower day? Um, we, we see a lot. Uh, yeah. That just that stamina and um, longer lasting in the vase and the vigor um, just uh, maybe a, another um, way for folks to see it is just simply when the dandelions <clears throat> might be blooming out in your fields hmm. you sometimes look up and you're like whoa the dandelions are really glowing today hmm. and you look and it sure enough it's a flower day yeah <laughs> oh wow <laughs> i love that <laughs> or and there are other things we see also uh like on a flower day you may notice the light you know sometimes you just look up from your farm work and you just see the light around you just mm -hmm. really beautiful and uh, just maybe um some little cloud windows you know how the light mm -hmm. pierces through or a really spectacular sunset often show up on flower days again oh, wow focus on the light um and then with the leaf days is a more focus on water mm -hmm. so you may have weather on a leaf day and you know, of course this isn't a regular thing but you may maybe you have the high stratus clouds developing on a leaf day. Um, so you start to see these subtle um, differences of these of these different days coming out in the weather, your plants, um, their their last ability in the refrigerator or in the vase. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that said, you know, in terms of harvest, you know, sometimes if we see like a frost coming um, in the forecast and it's like, okay, that's three days off from now, but we've got a flower day tomorrow you know, you might pull that, that harvest up, you know, a little bit sooner. I mean, we definitely do, you do that with things like winter squash or onions or things like that, that are going to be holding for a long time. But in the flowers, it's, you know, the same effect as well. By the way, I'm just like, I'm super excited that flowers are associated with light. I don't know why that makes me really happy to hear you say that <laughs> instead of being associated with rain or whatever. I, you know, like I, I like that flowers are associated with light. That's cool. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we should go through those associations, um, you know, because um, so there's basically the four main um, elements. So you have water, which bears an association to leaf, um, heat that bears an association to fruits, um, light is flower, as we've been talking about, and then um, earth would be an association with um, with roots. Mm-hmm. And those all have an association in the um, the cosmic background, you would say. So each constellation, each of the 12 zodiac constellations, each has a relationship um, to either, you know, earth, water, heat, or light. And it's when that constellation is going through the sun, right? Is that, if I remember right, it has to do when the constella- constellation is shifting around, Um the sun is that when they come into play is that right um it's actually as the moon moves oh, it through is the, moon. the the constellations okay. though each of the um though the sun where that is set up um relative to another constellation that moves a lot more slowly of course than the moon does but that does have an influence as well and um it, it's important to remember and this was a point steiner made it's that you know, we're part of this universe that is just so big and vast that, of course, you know, our closest neighbors, these celestial bodies would have an impact on this planet, because really, it's just a planet floating through space. It's (laughs) amazing, right? (laughs) It is. And the moon has like such a visual pull on our earth with the tides and stuff. So anytime I feel myself feeling a little doubt about all the woo, that I just think like, well, there's a very visual indicator of how strong the cosmic pull is from just one celestial body, you know, the moon. So there's all the other ones out there for sure. So, um, and the, and the constellation, I think that's, uh, associated with flowers is Gemini. And then there might be another one, but I, I remember Gemini is one of them. Is that right? That's yeah. right. There's also, um, Libra and Aquarius. Okay. Okay. Great. So the calendar is just kind of a prescribed way of flowing with the rhythm of the cosmos and then the way that influences the farm and the energy and the whole body of the farm. Is that a good summary of the calendar? Is just a, a, a way to help us flow? Yeah, I think that's great. Also, just reminding us that these influences are there and affecting us on a daily basis, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what's pillar number four? I'm ever so curious. <laughs> okay, <laughs> pillar number four um, would be that spiritual or intuitive relationship the farmer has to her farm and nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so really acknowledging that there's this unique relationship happening between farmer and farm and that that heightened awareness that we've kind of touched on uh, already that can develop when we put our mind to it. You know, metaphor I like to use here is uh, a fisherman and um, the relationship he or she may have to the river and and he or she may know exactly what time of day to go to what spot uh, and what kind of fly to use on the end of his fly rod to catch which fish and and just all those elements and sen- those sensory elements that come into play to become proficient at fly fishing. Mm. 
same is true uh, with farming. We, we have to kind of hone our senses as we wander around our farm. We, we even take special walks. Uh, we set aside time to take our, our either our Monday afternoon or Sunday afternoon walk to tune into these subtleties to practice so that when we're out there working, we can remember that, oh, um, to notice uh, as much as possible um, while we're hands-on and busy in our day. We can just take those moments to notice. Um, and then there's an aspect of opening your heart to your farm. You know, we, we all kind of fall in love with farming and the plants and animals. Um, so it's, I think it happens pretty naturally for most farmers, but just developing that awareness can bring you more insight into yeah. uh, your future and and more joy i would say i'm i really have this uh this uh mission in 2022 for myself to find as much joy at my farm as i possibly can because i think as farmers we often focus on the stress and the uncertainty and the stuff that's out of our control but it's mm -hmm. always there's always joy there to be had but a lot of times we're just blind to it because we we are too in our heads or whatever so i think i bet when you open your heart you feel a lot more joy about the farm uh in that way so i love that you know uh, that, you know that yeah. yeah joy <laughs> yeah i guess i i just want to know more about how you guys applied biodynamics to flower farming in particular, because there's so much information out there about vegetable farming, you know, um, dairy farming. I feel like I see a lot. I see a lot about vineyards and wine, you know, biodynamic, uh, but flowers, I feel like I took a long time to find you guys, <laughs> basically, when I was trying to find somebody to talk to about this, that was a flower farmer. So how have you been applying it? I feel like you're kind of pioneers in that. So tell me more. <laughs> yeah, well, well, one way that's been really amazing um, is just that it brings more balance to our farm. You know, we we are started as a veggie farm, so we're constantly rotating our crops, our we and we rotate um, based on that root, leaf, flower, fruit um, approach. So we have a lot of leaf crops in the in the veggie world. So bringing in that flower element has just helped that rotation be a, a more balanced program in the fields. Um, so that's that's one important role that um, flowers have brought to the, it's not only biodynamics, but to the organic um, approach. Oh yeah, and I was also going to say, you know, that really when you're looking at biodynamics, it's it's not so different from, you know, traditional organic farming and that you're using a lot of the same approaches you know we're composting our fields you know we do use some um you know amendments right um like organic amendments here and there mm -hmm. um, we're trying to move away from them but we do use them um but i think one of the big things that sets biodynamics apart is you know to be certified you uh, you absolutely have to set aside 10 percent of your farm as um, like wild or kind of natural um, space so that you know you're you're promoting your pollinators you're promoting birds you're promoting that life that's going to support your crops um, right. and I, I think that's a really important aspect yeah and we've really seen an increase in 
native pollinators since we stepped up our our flower program. Mm -hmm. We've always had some flowers on the farm, um, but in 2017, we really brought uh, more focus to cut flower growing. And since then, we have seen an incredible difference of uh, native pollinators, hummingbirds, um, various bees and flies and wasps, um, all just buzzing around having a great time and it's it's been quite noticeable that difference yeah it is amazing what flowers will bring to an ecosystem i i really want to see every farm in the world to have flowers on it just to to bring in uh the diversity of life because even if you grow a very diversified vegetable farm you're still never going to have quite the abundance of those birds and pollinators as you will around flowers so yeah mm -hmm. I, I love that you guys have seen that too out there <laughs> yeah and and lastly i guess we have seen just the quality of our product and and i don't think this is necessarily about us but more about these practices that <laughs> we get great feedback from our, our market customers, our CSA members, wholesale customers, just weekly, monthly. They just always are, are uh, pretty impressed with the quality of product. Right. Yeah. So well, it's not uncommon at the farmer's market, you know, for someone to say, oh, I still have last week's bouquet, but I'm going to get another one anyway, you know, <laughs> so just, you know, the yeah. quality is really outstanding. That's awesome. Do you think your customers care that you're certified biodynamic? Does that seem to be something that carries weight with your customer base at all? A handful, a handful of people seek us out because of okay. that. Yeah, we had um, a, a family recently move in from Minnesota and she was uh, associated with a Waldorf school, which is mm -hmm. also one of mm -hmm. Rudolf Steiner's um, uh, background. He, he helped establish the Waldorf philosophy. So she sought us out for sure. Um, and we have a handful of those families that, that are like, oh, you're biodynamic. Okay, great. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I Sometimes I wonder whether certifications in flowers, I, I understand that they're more of a sales pitch in vegetables, but in flowers, it sometimes feels like certified organic or biodynamic or whatever, maybe doesn't, you know, come to a customer's mind <laughs> that much because they're not eating it. So, um, yeah. Um, you know, one thing I would say about the certification that is important is, you know, we talked about these pillars, you know, and especially, mm -hmm. you know, treating that farm organism and understanding that really for the health of the land and regenerating that ecosystem and kind of driving it towards more of a self-sufficient model. Um, I mean, that's really what the world needs right now. And the more people that are seeing um, that, that a farm is doing that, it you know, hopefully we can get that push from the customers to, you know, start adopting those practices more widely because people start demanding them. So that's, right. that's mm -hmm. the hope in, in doing this, you know, and kind of being a pioneer or, you know, there, there's not that many biodynamic farms in this country. Um, but in Germany, there's tons of them. Oh, right? there where, are? Where people okay. People understand, you know, the value of them. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and when they see that uh, biodynamic seal, they they might ask, "What's this all about?" You know, and so you start mm -hmm. that conversation, which is is the the fuel for for more biodynamic farms. Right. Yeah. Is it hard to get certified biodynamic? Is that a complicated process the way it would be to get certified organic, or is it different in some way? 
It's not, it's not too difficult, uh, especially, you know, it's always that first time, right, that you feel <laughs> it's going to be the difficult time. And then once you've done it one year, it's, it, you know, it's very much like a regular organic certification. Okay. Um, certain requirements. And we do a dual certification. So a lot of organizations will do this where they send one certifier out who has the background to be able to certify you both in, in biodynamics and organics. So we don't have to have... Oh separate certifications. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, Do you, do you have to be certified organic to become certified biodynamic? Is it like a, it's a hand in hand kind of thing? It is at this time. Okay. Yeah. You need one. You could be certifiable biodynamic (laughs) and not certified organic, but the two are necessary at this time. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it sounds to me like biodynamics isn't nearly as woo-woo as I thought it was. I mean, there's there's some pieces of it that take a little bit more faith and a, a leap of faith into what seems a little less structured because it's not, you know, scientific, uh, chemistry-based knowledge like you would get out of a university study or something but it it feels from our conversation to me it's feeling like biodynamics is very much essentially just regenerative agriculture but with a special spin based on the the lectures of Steiner and the community that it sounds like it's building it sounds like there is definitely a community element to biodynamics which is very intriguing to me i love the idea of inviting people from my community to my farm to help um, uh, put the preparations out. That sounds like a really fun afternoon to me. (laughs) And then, and then if there's anybody, you know, doing some backyard gardening, you say, here, take a little home, spread it around your yard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't want to forget the crusty soil though, that we started um, all of this with. So what preparations do you think? Was it the preparation 500 or is it's a full gamut of them? What, what do you think really helped change the crusty soil now that we've talked a little bit more about biodynamics? Yeah, I would say the 500 is, is really key to the soil structure and helping it turn to cake. Hmm. Um, and, you know, getting back to your question too, of, you know, if I could do one prep, um, you know, and I don't want to um, discourage anyone from starting and saying, oh, you have to do it all, um, you know, start with the 500 and then move to the 501, uh, unless you want to go with these other Pfeiffer all-in-one packets. Um, but I think, you know, I think we started, I probably started at home gardening with the Pfeiffer material. And then um, at Snowdrift, when Ken and I were working together there, we started with the 500 and then the 501 and then the compost preps. So you can add them as you find the time and interest. To tease that apart then, to make this a little bit more actionable for anybody listening who's um, equally biodynamic curious, (laughs) such as myself, is... So I want to do 500. Um, I get some cow horns. I find some fresh manure, but I should bury it during the winter or I bury it in the fall to go over winter. So basically this podcast is happening in the winter time. So when's the next time I should gear up to try to make my own 500? 
Okay, great. Yeah, that would be next fall. And and also, you know, always feel free to to purchase the material, you know, if that's holding you back. And and I would say if something's holding you back, make it easier. Go the be like, oh, I don't want to go seek out, you know, these horns. Right. <laughs> um, I'm gonna just purchase this material this for now and next yeah. year. Yeah. Is there a reason you make 500 only in the fall to sort of, I guess, incubate in the ground over the winter? Does that have something to do with the cosmic forces or is the biology different? I'm curious from a, you know, just sort of like teasing apart, why is it in the winter time that you let that in the ground? Right. Um, one way to think about it would be like, you know, in the fall, everything's coming back into the soil. So, you know, energy and say like a tree, right? It's shedding its leaves down to the mm -hmm. soil and mm -hmm. all the energy is going back into the roots kind of to overwinter. The sap is going down in the ground. Um, so that's kind of the, that's happening everywhere basically in the soil at that time. So by putting it in during that season, you're getting all of that energy coming back down into the earth where it can accumulate in those horns. Hmm. I'm so glad I asked that question because I did not, I never would have thought of that and it makes so much sense. <laughs> so thank you, Ken, for that insight. <laughs> very, very helpful. So there's no way to make 500 by burying a horn in the spring because all the energy is going up and out and into the air, I guess. And, and that's where light and flowers and things happen in the, in that season. Yeah, that would be, that's the time to bury the 501, the, the horn silica. Okay. In the spring. Okay. That makes sense. And then when you're spreading, let's go back to 500. So I'll, if I bury a horn in the fall um, with fresh manure, do I would one horn's worth do? I have I have um, several different fields. Most of them are about an acre in size. So I would be looking to cover about four acres. Does that you know would one horn do an acre? Do you have a, a way of helping us all understand? How many horns <laughs> we need to yeah. bury? That's right, one horn per acre. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, and um, that usually does two spreadings, the one horn per acre, because mm. it's just a, it, it depends on the size of the horn, of course. Right, right, yeah. It's, it's about a third of a cup per acre. and Okay. And you spread it okay. in the spring in the fall, so you, you yep. always make enough for the two spreadings. Hmm. And honestly, there's there's always a little more than that after that. You know, there's plenty um, right. with one horn to do two spreadings. Okay. And, and uh, you do need to caution like um, uh, organic farmers that the, the um, right now the NOP is considering considering the 500 raw manure, even though it's oh. obviously compost. Composted, yeah. Um, you know, so that so you do need to watch out for the those manure spreading regulations. The hundred, oh, you know, the raw manure. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ken. That's good to know. So, so you spread it yeah. in the spring. Do you do it before crops are up? And you know, so basically, how early in the spring? Like once the snow melts, or do you wait until you've got your farm full of young transplants and then you spread it? What's the best time in the spring? Pretty much right for us. Right when after the snow melts um, and either either right then when the soil starts to be um, shown to the um, atmosphere, you know, after a snow melt um, mm -hmm. or after we start working the soil, if we are going to work the soil at all, 
that's also a good time. Say we're 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 trying to um, be, go no-till here, so we we do a little bed shaping sometimes in the spring. That's also a nice time to spread the 500 when you're uh, working with the soil. Okay, good to know. And then in the fall, you spread it again when things are going to rest, when it feels like frost is coming, or is it after frost that you do it? Uh, usually um, after frost, because that's when we have the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I would say in early October here for us, um, early to mid-October. Um, after after things are pretty quiet in the garden. Okay. okay. Yeah. And, you know, it's basically when you do spread that stuff out, it just kind of goes dormant and mm -hmm. it'll wake back up in the, in the spring. Okay. All those microbes okay. will wake up. Yeah. That's what I was kind of curious about. I love the sense of intention, the potential to build community around this uh, practice, all of that. But then when it comes to the actual, like, shaking, shaking out a you know, broomfuls of it across the land. I am curious about the physical, you know, transfer of that biology to the soil. You know, how is that really happening? Have you ever, do, do you, does the world of biodynamics talk about like doing this before a rain event or I guess it depends on what day, um, whether it's a root day or whatever. I, I'm curious how the transfer of the biology gets into the soil. Is it just the drop drops on the ground? It sounds like it has such a powerful impact. Uh, and I'm just curious of the vehicle of, of moving all that biology around. Yeah, yeah. I, w I would say it's very similar to, you know, well, it's kind of like you want to spread it like you would on like a nice seedling, you know, you wouldn't want it to be super dry. You wouldn't want it to be waterlogged, you know, like that nice moist soil is perfect. Like if there's a ton of water coming like that, like a big rain event, like you'd probably want to avoid that, but you know, you can try yeah. it. You, you can generally hit it when it's, you know, really nice time. And, you know, working with the calendar often, we uh, get the right weather that we, that we want. Yeah, to get. that's what I was just thinking. The calendar, I guess, helps you. So you spread it on root days. Is that what I remember you saying? Root of fruit. Yeah. Fruit. Yeah. fruit days. Uh, and think of it as um, yeast to bread. You know, you put mm. a little bit of yeast in your bread and a lot changes. Interesting. Uh, you are full of such amazing analogies, Erica. <laughs> I want you to just walk around with me and help me understand the world through analogies about fly fishing or bread. It's perfect. You're so good at it. <laughs> I can I can tell you have an educator's brain. Um, you're, you know how to how to help people understand. So, um, so what else? Maybe let's talk real quick if you don't mind, about seed sowing specifically, because this is what I've had a lot of podcast listeners talk to me about, and I've had curiosity myself. Um, just seed sowing should happen on, on a certain part of the moon calendar, and then specifically, ideally, for flower crops. It should be happening on a flower day, correct? I mean, is that, can we talk a little, get a little nerdy about the calendar? Yeah, <laughs> the ideal. And again, just we're speaking ideally, but again, if you have to get the job done, you get the job done. Let's mm -hmm. always remember that. Um, so ideally on a flower day, seed period, flower day. So seed period is uh, two weeks and then followed by a two week transplant period. And that just is throughout the whole calendar, two weeks seed, two weeks transplant, two weeks seed, two weeks transplant. So you you can plan ahead your seeding mm -hmm. period and your transplanting period. If if it doesn't line up on a flower day for you, say you have a, you know, 
I don't know, you know, your schedule doesn't allow it. Then you go for a fruit, fruit day is next best. Okay. Um, next followed by the root day, lastly, leaf day. Um, okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. I'm so glad you just said that. <laughs> I have been trying to do flower, but then always deferred to leaf. Cause I figured, well, like, okay, I, I, I probably want this plant to have lots of leaves regardless. I did not realize that I was kind of doing it the reverse of what should be. So Very why, why is it that a leaf day is not good for flower seeding? Do you know? Um, so you're basically promoting whatever you are, whatever day you're planting on. That's, that's the action that's being promoted. Um, and, um, and also with leaf, you know, comes water and, and water can, too much water can cause some issues for our plants. You know, we can have, mm -hmm. um, various bacteria or molds or various things that can be stimulated by too much water. So we try to avoid the leaf day when planting our flowers, um, there are also blank days on the calendar that they encourage you to not do anything. Um, so, mm -hmm. so those are important to be aware of. Um, yeah. But do you change, do you change it for bulbs and corms like ranunculus and tulips? Do you plant those on a root day then? I've, I've struggled myself to try to decide which day is right for those. Why? No, I still lean on the, the flower days as okay. my foremost, then fruit, because of course fruits come from flowers. So we're going to be encouraging that action when we, mm. when we do the seeding on those days. Mm -hmm. um, and then root again on the third place. Right. Right. So, so I would say one exception might be uh, when it comes to like, say, digging dahlias, you know, you might want to dig your tubers um, during that root day for best storage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. We also want to make sure they don't rot in storage and and more light that's available um, can can help avoid um, that rot potential. Right. If, if rotting is something that happens in your area, here we tend to have them dry out a little mm -hmm. in our area, um, so we tend to go for the root day. Um, but if you're on the east coast and you struggle with some of your dahlia tubers rotting in storage, I would lean on the the light of the flower day. Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting thing to think about because I know that I, at this point I've perennialized all my dahlias in the ground, so we don't dig and store them. But back in the years when we did dig and divide and store some years that I would lose none in storage. And then other years I would lose, you know, more than I would want to <laughs> in storage. And I could never quite figure out why I was using a fairly similar process from year to year. And I could never really figure out what it was. And I wonder if it was a subtle or as powerful as whether it was a root day versus a, a leaf day, you know, like if that had that influence, which is incredible to think about. Right. And, um, you know, I, my friends, we ha actually are blessed with several other uh, biodynamic farms in our valley. So we get to have conversations with other biodynamic farmers about these things. Um, and one of my friends suggested that even if you do end up having to plant, say, your, your tubers or, or a bulb on the, the wrong day or a different day, um, <laughs> you can go back and um, change that energy by hoeing. So you do some cultivating oh. on a flower day. And that brings the energy back around for that plant. 
Really? Wait, wait. I don't know anything about this. I've not heard this before. Wait, so explain. Please explain. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's uh, it's about kind of shifting the energy. So, whatever day you're working with that um, plant. Um, so, say I'm manipulate. Say I'm dropping the seed. So that mm -hmm. energy is set in that direction of flower, fruit, root, uh, flower, fruit, root, or leaf. Um, and and so the, it's on that trajectory that you've set it on, okay. whether you transplanted it or planted it or hoed it. So then, of course, we come, want to work again the next time with that that plant on it the appropriate day. So if we're planting kale, we're going to try to seed it on a leaf day. We're going to hoe it on a leaf day. Whatever we're going to do, we want to keep it on that trajectory. A leaf day. Of, Wow. That would be, you know, a kale example on a, on uh -huh. a flower. We would keep it going on that flower influence trajectory. Huh. Does that make sense? Is this getting too woo woo? No, no. I, I'm <laughs> sitting here. I wish I, I wish everybody could see my face because I'm sitting here just like, wow. Okay. So what does this mean? I, I can, I want to like stretch it out in my brain. Um, so does that mean we should weed crops on, like, I, I don't use, yeah. we do use a hoe, but we often just hand weed, uh, at my farm. And so we should be striving to weed on a specific day as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so we work with the specific crops on specific days, and then that gets back to, you know, the ease of planning our schedule. So, mm -hmm. you know, when we look at our week ahead, we're like, okay. And we're starting out fruit, it's turning root, and then flower at the end. Okay, well, let's focus on the tomatoes early in the week. Let's move to the carrots and potatoes, you know, and, and then we'll finish with flower cultivation at the end of the week. Right, right. So that I can see how that would be easier on a diverse farm. But when you're just a 100% flower farm, I guess I'm not going to be able to stick to it. But I am fascinated by that. Yeah. Remember, half the days are flower and fruit. So... So um, fruit is a great second day to work with your flowers. Okay. Okay. And even root, you know, I mean, if you are hundred percent flowers, it's, mm -hmm. you know, you need all those days. Cool. So what else should people know about biodynamics? Like if you're trying to, it sounds like this is such a wonderful practice for regenerative farming. There's so many interconnected pieces with permaculture and, um, organic and and all the other elements that seem more familiar to a lot of farmers. What what do you think people should know about biodynamics just to kind of convince them? If you're trying to <laughs> trying to sell a farmer on becoming biodynamic, what what's your sales pitch? I would say it it kind of just brings it all together so beautifully. Like we have our organic practices that you know we do this and we do that, but it's just ties it up in a beautiful bow that is uh, just so intuitive. It just feels um, so right. And, and I think it adds that layer of quality that sometimes we're striving for in the organic certified organic world. We're like, yeah, we're certified organic. It's great stuff. But we, there's a, another layer of quality that comes from going biodynamic that I think people will see when they start to delve into it, they'll be like, ah, oh, this is the, the 
French way or what, you know, the, <laughs> you know the, we see that real, um, the, just the amazing quality in mm. our crops, in the taste, in the smells, in the, in the color, in the last ability um, that you may be struggling with um, on a, uh, you know, now and then on your certified organic farm. You may right. be like, hmm, you know, this is good, but it's not absolutely top notch. I want to be mm. top notch. <laughs> um, I think that's what biodynamics brings you. Okay. That's good to know. And it sounds like a sense of community as well um, in terms of it, 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 it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but probably the best way to learn about biodynamics is to find a mentor like you had, Erica. Do you think that's the best approach? Yes. I, I think up, at least for those of us who are, are learned by doing, um, mm -hmm. it's really a great way if you I you know there are only 130 biodynamic farms in America so you oh. may have the ability to to uh, to jump over to a farm um, but you could call a farmer and and folks are always welcome to call us uh, email us questions um, and we're happy to do a little consulting that way Cool. Uh, well, thank you so much, both of you, for this. It was such an amazing conversation for me, and I know podcast listeners are going to love it. So I appreciate your time, and I wish, you know, I wish the season ahead will be joyful and full of wonderful light and energy for you guys, too. So thanks for your time. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, thanks thank so much. Yeah. yeah, of course. So nice. <laughs> Well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No-Till Flowers. I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil. Yeah, they need, they need somebody to help stir the vortex for <laughs> an hour or two. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> Well, I always did wonder about the stirring for a whole hour. That seems really, really hard to me. Do you guys kind of just zen out? How, how does that work? You know, when you got to do a whole hour of stirring. <laughs> oh, you have you have to trade off. Okay. There's, there's no way <laughs> to do it on your own. <laughs>